Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Lawhouse. Today we will be talking to Elizabeth Shackelford and M. Sanderson of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs about their new report co-authored with Ethan Kessler, Less is More, about U.S. security assistance to African states and why the U.S. needs a new strategy there. First, let's turn to a story closer to home. Last week, the Republican Party held their first presidential primary debate of this election cycle. And during the debate, some of the candidates went after each other over foreign policy differences. The candidates are all uh, definitely hawks, but they are not all exactly the same. And that's where we see some interesting disagreements crop up. Nikki Haley was particularly aggressive in criticizing Vivek Ramaswamy for his suggestion that the U.S. should end aid to Israel, going so far as to say that it's not that Israel needs America, it's America that needs Israel. For his part, Ramaswamy went out of his way to praise Israel and was proposing an arrangement where Israel wouldn't need U.S. aid because all other states in the region would have normalized relations with them by that point. Uh, he also came under attack for his positions on Ukraine and Taiwan, and we can talk a bit more about those in a minute. The fight over Israel was a curious one because both candidates are vocally pro-Israel and don't disagree about much else on these issues. But it did reveal a certain tension inside the GOP between those that identify as quote-unquote America first and those that toe the conventional party line. Journalist Matthew Petty talked about this a bit in a recent piece he wrote on his Substack about uh, about that tension uh, between the two camps. Uh, for my part, I thought Ramaswamy's position on Taiwan seemed designed to antagonize everyone by pledging to fight for them in the near term and then switching to the opposite position further in the future. Uh, Haley's line about America needing Israel was very strange. It, I don't know where she really comes up with that. Uh, what did you make of their exchanges, Kelly? I mean, I was increasingly angry in watching it because I felt like she was at one point screaming at Ramaswamy and wasn't allowing him to get a full point across. And I I get very agitated watching these debates because, I mean, I like good entertainment like anybody else, but I want a free exchange. And I don't like it when one candidate is literally talking over the other one and, and sucking their time away. And then we can't actually hear what they have to say, what they're you know, idea is uh, full from A to B. And I feel like he, he would start to get an answer out and she'd scream uh, and drown him out. And it really wasn't a good platform for Ramaswamy to, you know, uh, share his ideas about foreign policy to a much bigger audience. I feel like folks like me and you have been kind of following him for a little bit and sussing out like where he really stands on China and Russia, but this was his first debut in front of a major television audience, and she just sucked the life out of his opportunities. Um, that aside, I, I, you know, I, I was describing this on a meeting this morning with colleagues. I, I almost had this weird, triggered reaction to Pence and Haley and Chris Christie. I was, I was thrown back to 2004 and those yeah. um uh the the presidential election the the GOP national convention in New York City where every candidate had to outdo each other in this full-throated support of the war in Iraq and the global war on terror and I felt like this was a major flashback that I just I didn't appreciate I, I I likened it to like a grip of ice on my heart because I was like oh my god we've been here before we have Republican candidates who are using every hubristic um, verbal ploy to win over what they perceive is the Republican base 
by sounding as warmongering and as, um, as, as in support of American exceptionalism in the, its most perverse term uh, way as they possibly can. And I, and I saw that happening in real time, particularly with Chris Christie talking about Russians gouging Ukrainian eyes out and raping their daughters. And I said, this emotional argument is so shopworn, but it's effective. And that's why you, you saw uh, Ramaswamy and DeSantis kind of struggling with how to respond to that in cold realist terms. Personally, I would have said I, I would have not ceded the moral argument. I would have talked about would talk about how Ukrainians are dying uh, every day because this war is being prolonged. And is it really moral and ethical to not pursue diplomacy or something of that nature. But they kept talking about things like, oh, well, Europe's not paying its fair share and we need the resources to fight China. And I, I found personally as a restrainer, I found that very weak. Um, you know, maybe other people in the base, which I do not count myself as somebody who is a member of the uh, Republican base, maybe they found their arguments compelling, but I just don't think that they were um, as fully formed or they or they weren't given the opportunity to, to fully flesh them out because of the, um, the the shrieking by Haley and the tisking and tasking by Christie was making this 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 full throated emotional appeal. Yeah, and, and I, I agree that there was a lot of this sort of throwback, uh, the feeling of a throwback to the Bush era. Uh, and, and indeed, with, with a lot of these candidates, these are people that that got their start, that, that launched their careers during the Bush era, and and they they molded their foreign policy worldview uh, at that time to, to match that uh, approach to the world. Uh, and and I think I mean the, one of the problems that DeSantis and Ramaswamy have is that they're they they make a point of emphasizing how nationalistic they are, how hawkish they are on China, and so they they don't I don't think they can. Quite make the rhetorical moves that that you need to make to counter some of this stuff, because uh, they're they're so insistent on emphasizing how how strong and powerful they want America to be and how uh, how aggressive they want their policies to be, and so anything that that suggests the possibility of accommodation or compromise or or any sort of uh, softening of that line uh, is just they're very uncomfortable talking in those terms. And so you get this uh, instead, uh, an emphasis on, on hard power stuff. We need more resources to fight China. And and that's where it, it always ends up with these guys. And so I, I think that that puts them at the, the disadvantage uh, because they can't, they can't really make a case for engagement on its own terms. It's always as a means to some larger hawkish goal. And that, that ends up, I think, undermining what they're trying to do. Um, uh, speaking of Ramaswamy, we uh, we had seen just before the debate, he gave a big speech at the Nixon Presidential Library. Um, I, I think we both covered it uh, in different places. Uh, I wrote about it at my Substack, uh, and he he models himself on Richard Nixon, which is is a curious choice in and of itself, I think, given Nixon's reputation. Uh, but he but he touted the virtues of Nixonian realism. That's how that's what he called it. And he, but he was doing this as part of a very aggressive anti-China foreign policy. 
and set himself up as doing the the reverse of what Nixon did back in the 70s, where he would go to Russia to pry Russia away from China, uh, much as Nixon had done uh, separating China from the Soviet Union back then. Um, but in general, I don't see him as being interested in the kind of detente that Nixon practiced, uh, especially in his second term. Um, because he seems he seems so intent on this China hawkish approach uh, that there's there's really no room for give on that front, and so the the only area where he's interested in making any kind of compromise is with Russia. But I, I'm not sure that that's really going to fly uh, either with the Russians or with uh, with people in Washington. Um, but, but what do you think of his his rhetoric of? of, of framing himself as a realist, talking about himself as a realist. Uh, do you think that it is uh, genuine, or is he dressing up something else in the clothes of realism to make it more acceptable? I mean, my my gut on this is that he is not a foreign policy guy. He walked into this new role for himself as presidential candidate without a foreign policy background at all. So it's kind of like he's a lump of clay and he's been talking to people throughout Washington, mostly conservatives, obviously, about foreign policy and gleaning here and there what he feels is best. And when I say feels his best is that he's put his finger up to the wind and he wants to appeal to a, a particular Republican. He wants to appeal to the populist Republicans on the right. Uh, the Trumpians. And that's fine. And I think that he's been very effective. And you can see this in his in the polling at capturing the the Trump vote so that he's kind of jockeying to be that guy who's still standing if something happens to Trump and Trump has to drop off out of the race. He's going to be the guy that has captured all that MAGA. And so when it comes to foreign policy, He's got he's to do a little bit of a delicate dance here. He has to appeal to populists. He, and, and, and in that way, the more Jacksonian types, people who are still really, you know, very much behind a strong national defense, but yet are skeptical of uh, regime change wars, of, you know, going in search of monsters to destroy, uh, particularly on the Ukraine front. But this particular base is very hawkish on China. They don't like China. They believe China is responsible for COVID. They believe that China is responsible for taking their jobs, uh, for, for globalism writ large. And so he has to formulate a foreign policy that is both restrained on Ukraine, but tough on China. And I think that he has found his muse among folks like Albridge Colby, who has a much fully formed doctrine on, on, on a, a, do you call it offensive realism or whatever? Um, I'm not an IR theorist, but he's a realist. And I think that appeals to Ramaswamy, but yet he is unformed in that he doesn't really um, he is he isn't able to convey it in a way that reflects any sophistication in his arguments. So he says things like, well, I will just 
convince Russia to get out of its military alliance with China. Well, Russia doesn't have a military alliance with China. I think Russia would really love to have a military alliance with China. But as we've seen the last two years, China has only gone so far in terms of its support for Russia in the in Ukraine war. So right there, I'm thinking this guy really doesn't know what he's talking about. And that somehow he's going to get he's going to he's going to tear the two apart by convincing Russia um you know, to, 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 to get out of, of Ukraine, but Ukraine will have to cede some territory. And it's very superficial. And I, I call it magical thinking or hope or, you know, wishful thinking. And it doesn't really reflect somebody who has a, a command of the geopolitics at hand. So that's what I would say about Ramaswamy. I feel like he's just has walked into this without a clear idea of who he is, what he believes in. And I'm not so sure he's, he's, I would call his foreign policy particularly principled. We are honored to welcome Elizabeth Shackelford and Emma Sanderson to the show today. Shackelford is a senior fellow on U.S. foreign policy at the Chicago Council. Before that, she was a career diplomat with the U.S. Department of State until December 2017 when she resigned in protest of the Trump administration. She is the author of The Dissent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age. Emma joined the Chicago Council as well in 2021 and is a communication and research assistant on U.S. foreign policy. The two just issued a new report co-authored with Ethan Kessler entitled Less is More, a new strategy for U.S. security assistance to Africa. The authors look at the $11 billion the U.S. has spent in Africa on security assistance uh, since the start of the global war on terror and looks at the results. They're not good, especially in light of the rash of coups in the Sahel over the last few years. Thank you for joining us today, ladies. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. So as you say in the report, uh, quote, the U.S. approach to Africa today is neither effective nor sustainable. It's time to flip the script rather than presume that security assistance will enhance stability and increase our influence, the U.S. government should recognize that security assistance in the hands of weak, fragile, or, li- or illiberal states is innately risky. Now, I know you've been watching the developments, developments in Niger where a junta, which we know includes U.S. military-trained officers, overthrew the democratically elected leader on August 16th. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the U.S. and Niger and how indicative this is of the warnings that you raise in your report? And Elizabeth, do you want to go first? Sure. I mean, it. You know, we've been working on this report for, for quite a few months now. And so the timing of the Niger uh, coup was you know, I mean, I can't say that it was that surprising, but it did really tend to underscore a lot of the points that we've made in this research. And this is an issue that I first became really interested in as a U.S. Foreign Service officer. My last posting was in Somalia. So I really saw the nature of these very close security cooperations um, uh, and relationships up front and the impact that it had on our ability to focus some of these governments on other things. When you look at 
Niger in particular, um, this has been one of our closest partners in the Sahel and West Africa. And it was one of those examples that you know, kind of, uh, the U.S. government officials would frequently point to and say, but here's where it's working. And uh, of course, now what we see is you give it a little more time. And at the end of the day, it's not. I won't say, you know, Correlation isn't necessarily causation. I don't think that U.S. security assistance is necessarily, you know, directly causing coups. But I do think that given the number of places where we've been so active, you know, for over a decade, what, uh, you know, if we're not at a very minimum, we're not preventing these outcomes. Um, so we need to be a lot more critical about why we're there, what we're trying to get out of it and what these outcomes are looking like in the end. Emma, were you particularly surprised at the coup in mid-August in Niger or um, in terms of all the research that you both have been doing, does this just seem like, did this just come as another data point, you know, along the way in terms of like how U.S. military assistance in these countries um, has gone wrong? Yeah, I I wasn't too surprised by it. And I think it kind of lines up with a lot of what we're looking at with the cyclical nature of how U.S. security sector assistance in turn leads to an undermining of, of governance. And this weak governance and terrorist violence works hand in hand because when a government fails to deliver or perpetuates civilian abuse, it generates resentment, which lends itself to terrorist recruiting and, and feeling extreme ex extremist groups. And that, of course, leads to a rise in violence, which can prevent economic growth and increase more resentment. It's just a cycle. And then that bad governance, in turn, opens the door for militarization, too, like we saw in Niger uh, and in Mali and in Guinea and Burkina Faso and these close U.S. security partners where, you know, we're just seeing the cycle happen again and again. Um, so I wasn't surprised, but it, it is a bummer. As Lizzie said, people thought that's where we could be optimistic. Yeah. Now, just to stay on, on this topic for one more question, Elizabeth, it seems to me, and then in the case um, earlier of Sudan, that our diplomatic presence uh, or our diplomatic influence seems to be kind of faltering. And so where is the diplomatic core when things like this happen? So, the, you know, the, there was the overthrow, the, um, the democratic leader is in a, the basement of the, the palace with his family. ECOWAS is on the sidelines saying, hey, we're going to intervene if you, if you don't restore the government. The junta says, no, we're not. And in, in, in the meantime, they're inciting uh, the, the people against the Western um, influence, particularly the French. They say they're not going anywhere. Um, they're actually gaining in popularity. Where is the U.S. In, in, in terms of its diplomatic game here? Well, the challenge with the diplomatic approach is that U.S. diplomats are out-resourced, uh, outnumbered, and outranked. And so it's not that even the even you know the Department of Defense understands that there are not military only solutions to these problems. I mean, this is something this this isn't a concept that's lost on the White House or the Pentagon or the State Department. There's this understanding that you need a strong diplomatic and development response to address these underlying grievances that Emma was talking about. But at the end of the day, 
you're fighting against, you know, an 800 pound gorilla that just has more reach, uh, more impact and more influence with these governments. You know, I, I, again, I saw this in Somalia, my military colleagues would want me to be out and about meeting with government officials that, you know, would pull them aside because they happened to be, you know, out in the regions. And we couldn't be because we didn't have the resources or the permissions to do that. And so, you know, at the core, it's less a problem with not understanding the challenges. And it's more just a, a massive prioritization and resource imbalance. And so when you look at Niger, this is actually an example where this fledgling democracy, this only two years ago, they had their first democratic transition. They had a democratically elected president for a couple of terms. And then they had this peaceful transition of power a couple of years ago. And President Bazoum deeply understood that, you know, U.S. counterterrorism and military assistance alone was not going to do it. But he just, you know, I, I don't think he had enough time, space, and capacity to pursue some of the negotiations and peace talks um, uh, that he was working on that were making some progress. And the U.S. for over a decade had really strengthened and empowered the military side. And that kind of helped feed that idea that the military was better positioned to respond when, you know, had U.S. priorities been different maybe that outcome would have looked different to the civilians in the country and, you know, to the government, to the government leadership there. Well, let's just stay on the idea of uh, the U.S. military and its involvement for just a second. Emma, I wanted to ask you, our investigative reporter Nick Terse has been writing quite a bit about the, the ties between coup leaders and U.S. military assistance in the region. He found just last week, we had a story in, in which he reported that at least 15 U.S. military-supported officers ha had been linked to 12 coups since the global war on terror began in Africa. Are there no guardrails put into place with these guys uh, as they're being trained, after they're being trained? Like, what's missing from the equation that these mentees of the Pentagon um, can take our sophisticated training, our weapons, and then turn them on their own people without any thought of the consequences. There doesn't seem to be any consequences. There's, and then the Pentagon turns around and says, well, we don't know of these guys. And, you know, they keep, they supposedly keep really shoddy records. So we can't like connect the two, but what's missing here? I think, what you were just saying about the records and the information is is crucial here. Uh, you know, these outcomes can't be pinned solely on the United States, of course, but Washington, as we're saying, has not achieved the policy goals in Africa that it set out at the start of the war on terror. And we're not studying the impact of our assistance enough to know what kind of role it's playing. So the U.S. military might be able to provide some numbers. In some cases, we might be able to know who was trained by the U.S. military, but what we're, we're not talking about more broadly on the ground is what the civilian and military relationship looks like, what the state of the institutions are, and, and government violence against the people. There are so many more examples of, of important information and data that we need to have a better decision-making process there. And so I think that, that that's a crucial step that we could work on. Yeah, uh, definitely. But one of the things that you, you emphasize in the report is how how little the the government is doing to to assess the effectiveness of of the policies that it's implementing. 
Uh, but if we look at the evidence in terms of the the, the violence that has resulted over the last decade, uh, it, it seems clear that the policies aren't having the, the desired effect for a lot of these partner countries. As you note in your report, terrorist violence on the continent has increased 300% over the past decade, with the bulk of violence in the Sahel and Somalia, the two areas that have seen the greatest concentration of U.S. security assistance on the continent. So at best, the, the assistance isn't making its partners more secure, and it may, in fact, be making security problems worse than they were. Uh, what, one of the countries that you focus on in the report uh, is Burkina Faso. That's one of your case studies. And uh, could you just tell us a bit about what the situation was in Burkina Faso when U.S. security assistance started and, and what effect that assistance has had in terms of strengthening their military and, and, and militarizing uh, their country? Burkina Faso is a really interesting case because it's one of those places where the U.S. decided to focus on before there was a terrorist threat there. It was that idea of, you know, filling that gap before it was filled by extremism. Um, but, you know, of course, as, as you've indicated, the trajectory seemed to go in exactly the opposite direction. You know, again, I'm, I'm very cautious. I don't want to claim that, you know, U.S. security assistance is necessarily causing these outcomes, but we know it's not helping and we're not studying it enough to know whether or not it's contributing to this. And so Burkina Faso, you look at it, it was a you know a pretty peaceful place when we first um, brought into the um, the Trans-Sahel uh, uh, Counterterrorism Partnership um, over a decade ago. And uh, through that time, which probably made sense to the U.S. military, you know, train these forces in counterterrorism tactics and approaches before terrorism can, can get a foothold. The problem is, you know, and it goes back to how we're judging success. And the U.S. military tends to judge its accomplishments through how many troops it has trained and equipped, you know, how many have learned certain counterterrorism functions. They're not tying that thread to how is that training leading to, you know, kind of security and stability on the ground. They're just kind of skipping that part over. They study the levels of violence. I mean, that that data point there, the 300% increase comes from, you know, U.S. government sources. Um, but the response tends to be, and this is what we've seen in Burkina Faso, well, the terrorist threat and the violence is increasing, so we need to put more security assistance in place without assessing whether that is a tool fit for purpose in this case. Uh, so again, you know, it's, I don't know where we should, you know, fully pull out military assistance. I don't think we should be supporting, you know, military hunters. But uh, I think this is an area where we have not been asking the right questions about that impact. And if you look at Burkina Faso from where it was, you know, a dozen years ago to where it is today, it is less democratic, it is less secure, it is more violent. Um, and we have also worked ourselves out of even having the image of influence on that government, which is now, you know, under military rule and, and likely influenced by, you know, the Wagner group and others. Sure. And, and as you explain uh, further in the report, uh, one of the reasons that uh, our government's assistance may be contributing to insecurity and instability is that the beneficiary governments, as you say, often use those capabilities to oppress and terrorize portions of their population, uh, frequently targeting minority groups not connected to those in power. Uh, we, we certainly see that in the Burkina Faso example with the, the uh, abuses against the Fulani people. Uh, what, what are some of the other examples of this in your case studies? Uh, Emma, could you talk about that a bit? 
Yeah. Well, so I worked on the Ethiopia case study, and I think that's an unfortunate but another strong example of this issue here, where, uh, to put it simply, so from 1991 to 2018, Ethiopia was run by the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, which was uh, representative of the Tigrayan minority, represented about 6% of the population. So uh, the U.S. essentially relied on the TPLF-led Ethiopian government for um, the early 2000s, beginning with the 1998 embassy bombings um, to counter terrorism in the region. As a counterterrorism partner, um, we tended with Ethiopia, we tended to look away when they um, used our assistance uh, or when they turned their weapons against their own people. So uh, there were a couple instances um, throughout 20, between 2006 and 2018 where um, the TPLF was turning its weapons against uh, different uh, ethnic groups. And then um, at the same time, Ethiopia was flourishing economically, but a lot of that benefited the elite, which was mostly um, Tigrayan elite. So there were a lot of discontent. There's a lot of discontent among a lot of the people. And um, eventually this led to turning a turnover uh, in leadership to Abiy Ahmed, who uh, has been president since 2018 or prime minister since 2018. And he uh, was not part of the TPLF. He was a um, different ethnic group. But because the U.S. had so resolutely backed the TPLF for those years, um, it undermined our potential relationship in the future with a new government. So we kind of resolutely backed Abiy in the same way that we did with the TPLF. Well, he, ha- he was promising at first. Um, he campaigned on reform and unity, and then um, it, it shifted. He, he actually did win a Nobel Prize, though, uh, for brokering a peace deal with Eritrea. So it wasn't just the U.S. who was optimistic. Um, a lot of the international community was behind him. But he led Ethiopia into a civil war with uh, um, against the Tigrayan people, against the TPLF in the northern region. That's left 600,000 people dead, um, millions in need of dire assistance. And the U.S. was not able to, uh, in, in, in showing for how little we, we get out of these security relationships, we weren't able to press for any changes there either. So um, at best, we've looked away. At worst, we've, you know, kind of paved way for for autocratic or a liberal leaders to go in that direction. But um, Ethiopia is another unfortunate example there. And, and one of the, the larger points, or one of the interesting points that you make in the, the report uh, is that the, the security justification that we use for our involvement in these uh, conflicts and, and in our support for these governments uh, doesn't really hold up uh, in the sense that the, the threat to U.S. interests from terrorism in Africa is actually quite limited, as, as you point out. Um, as you say, that no African terrorist group has demonstrated both the capability to strike the U.S. homeland and the drive to do so. And so uh, can you say a bit more about the limited nature of the threat and, and why it has been such a mistake to make counterterrorism the overriding priority in working with African governments? Yeah, just to to connect back to the Ethiopia example here, um, the main reason Ethiopia was our partner was to to counter terrorism in Somalia and and look at Somalia today. It's still facing a violent terrorist insurgency, and in fact, we backed an Ethiopian coup of the Islamic government in Somalia. Well, what happened after that was Al Shabaab was was born out of opposition to foreign intervention. So we kind of have helped 
create the very monster we, we choose to, to try to fight in these areas. So yeah, Somalia is a great example there. And I'll let Lizzie take yeah. it from there. I mean, it, it is really remarkable how much, uh, I mean, obviously, kind of the, the Islamic terrorist threat um, post 9-11 was the biggest boogeyman we were facing. We're always looking for a boogeyman. That was it for a couple of decades. And so it really lo- loaned itself to threat inflation, uh, particularly across Africa. You know, this was a place where there, there were risks. You know, you did have the, the embassy bombings 25 years ago. That was one of the, the kind of really first examples of what, um, of what the threat could be against U.S. interests. But, you know, since that time, that was something that we took care of largely through, um, you know, intelligence um, and policing action and working with allies around the world. You know, that wasn't something um, that that's the kind of threat that we can and have managed to manage and address through other means. Uh, whereas our security assistance, which we believed was one of our primary tools for doing so, had, you know, in a lot of ways, the opposite effect. It helped metastasize this challenge because what it did was you brought U.S. troops into places supporting unpopular governments um, that were fighting, you know, in most of these cases, insurgencies that had, you know, kind of legitimate grievances against the government. Now, what we're seeing today is a lot of these homegrown groups, such as, you know, Al-Shabaab, are, they're, they're getting aligned with global terrorist networks. And so the United States and others are able to say, see, look, it's, you know, it's the global terrorist threat, it's ISIS, it's um, Al-Qaeda. But these are, largely in a lot of these places, these are kind of marriages of convenience. And the better approach would be to, you know, pick away um, and attract away uh, some of their recruits in order to kind of break the strength and the growth of these organizations. There's not a security solution uh, to these challenges. And our security response has really helped grow that. But as, as, you know, starting with this question, yeah, what is the threat? The threat to U.S. interests of terrorism on the African continent has increased dramatically as we have increased our fight against it because what we have done is put a target on our backs by uh, by going into these other countries and into these other places to fight um to fight organizations um and extremist groups that don't have a beef with us that at the end of the day their primary beef is with their government and their government not delivering so we should be helping their government deliver better if we want that threat to go down and I, I think that makes sense. Uh, and so that, that brings us to our final question. And I know we're almost out of time, but uh, if you can just give some of your top recommendations for what the U.S. should be doing in, instead of uh, what it has done. Uh, well, uh, yeah. sorry. Um, I think the starting point is a change in the culture and the approach, which means just enhancing our skepticism for security sector assistance and um, increasing our valuation of longer-term stability. You know, rethinking how we consider this threat so that we are able to look at the long-term instead of worrying about short-term potential security threats. That's the big picture recommendation. It's a cultural shift, which doesn't happen easily. In terms of kind of concrete things we can do, um, you know, you have to address the imbalance of our of our forces on the ground. We need more civilian forces. We need 
We need diplomats and development professionals, not just to be on the ground, but be, to be given the, the resources and the space and the political support to engage. Um, I saw this on the ground in Somalia all the time. I, the State Department trained me for seven months in the Somali language, and I never got to leave the Mogadishu International Airport base because we had neither the permissions nor the resources to be able to travel around and do our jobs. So, um, you know, resourcing the State Department. And I'll say that the third big recommendation that um, that I think is a place we could we could really make a difference is to resource our ability to assess human rights impact and stability impact on the ground. And that means more data collection for the impact of our security assistance, um, you know, providing the State Department with the tools it needs to be able to do that human rights assessment, which we aren't able to do now. Um, and one of the specific recommendations we make is to start uh, tasking our intel uh, resources with gathering this information. We've got folks on the ground. They just need to know that this is something that we care about. But that's the only way we're really going to be able to assess if the tools we're applying are actually promoting the goals that we want at the end of the day. Right. That, that sounds, uh, those sounds like some very good recommendations. I, I hope that there are people in the government uh, paying attention to this. Uh, thank you again uh, for coming on the show, Elizabeth Shackelford and Emma Sanderson from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Uh, check out their, their new report, Less is More, a new strategy for U.S. security assistance to Africa. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Both. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.